Good morning, everyone. If you're new and visiting, my name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. If you're visiting, you're our guest, a warm welcome. And um, I'm going to make the welcome even more warm as we open up to the fires of this passage. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our series uh, in Exodus from Exodus uh, chapter 19, verse 7. Uh, next week, actually, we're going to kind of begin a series, a mini-series within the series as we t- uh, pause to look at the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're going to be looking at what they are, we're going to be looking at why they matter, how to discern if you struggle with it, how to find the freedom of Christ, how to put it to death. Um, so prepare yourselves for that beginning next week. Uh, but open up with me, if you have a Bible, uh, to Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to read from verse 7 to the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 19, verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set them all, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the uh, words of the people to the Lord, The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up on to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. 
And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Why don't you join with me in praying? Lord God, this morning we come before your word with humble hearts. Lord, we need your help this morning. We need your help to rightly hear your word, to rightly see what you're like. So I just pray, help me. Help me to speak faithfully your words to your people. Lord, may any ego or self-esteem be put to the side and may people see Jesus Christ this morning. I pray in his name. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a question. And that is, if I was to ask you, what is God like? What would you say? You know, you might not believe in God, but for those who do, you'd probably have a range of responses in post-Christian pluralistic Sydney. Many people, if you ask them, would say things like, well, God's good. God is loving and kind. God is merciful. God is a friend to sinners. God is perhaps gracious and accepting. God is perhaps a bit like my grandpa, you know, kind, gentle, old, loving. According to the Bible, the idea of God being loving and kind and merciful is true. But it's not the whole picture. There are plenty of other descriptions of God in the Bible that are far less likely to be on the list. Things like wrathful, just, all-powerful, holy, to be revered, dangerous, even to be feared. Why is that? Why don't we like the thought of a God of wrath and judgment? Well, there's many reasons, but most of all, I put to you this morning that as a people in the West, we've tried to remake God in our own image. You know, we live in an individualistic culture. Life is about you. We want a God that lets us be at the center of the world. Put another way, we, we want the freedom to live as we please. We value acceptance and tolerance and comfort. And a God of wrath and judgment, we kind of think, well, God, what gives you the right? More than that, in our culture of Aussie mateship, we don't like having authority over us and we want God to be our mate, an accomplice a life coach, 
a kind of guide who gives us advice, but only when we want it. We've tried to remake God in our own image. But friends, this morning we don't want to gather to worship the Western God of our imagination. We want to pause and worship the holy God of the Bible. And just a warning this morning, if you haven't already picked it up, today's passage is very intense. So brace yourself. This morning, we're going to pause and examine a passage that teaches something almost completely lost in our culture. Something that, if rightly understood, believed, and lived in light of, can completely change your life. What is this truth? Simply put, that God is to be feared. This morning's message, if you're a note taker, uh, is entitled, Upon the Mount in Fire. I have three simple points, two of which are taken directly from the text, and the third, which will be more of an application, but one hope, which I've already said this morning, and that is that God would help us to fear him. Well, let's dive in with point number one, and that point is preparing to meet God. Well, just by way of context, if you're new to the story, Israel had come to Mount Sinai uh, roughly three months after the exodus from Egypt. And God had brought them here because he'd saved them and now wants to draw them to himself. They've been drawn out of Egypt to be drawn into God. And here at Sinai, God intends to visit them in a unique way. He wants to manifest his glory and enter into a special relationship with them. And it's really this scene that is the highlight of the Old Testament, as Israel will spend about 10 months here. You know, in ancient times, people who wanted to enter into a special relationship with one another would form an agreement, which is called a covenant. A covenant could be between a man and a woman who are getting married. A covenant could be between a king and his servants or people. It's an agreement that kind of highlights the terms and conditions of their relationship. And next week, God will give some of the terms of his covenant, um, his instruction for his people, how to be like him, the Ten Commandments. You're probably familiar with many of them. And after having already saved Israel, God said to Moses, if you'll just listen to my voice and keep my covenant, keep my agreement, You'll be my unique treasure amongst all the peoples. You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You'll be holy just like me and priests meeting with me and representing me to the world. And so our passage continues. Why don't you read again with me from Exodus chapter 19, verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered him together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. To meet with God, Moses is going to go up and down Mount Sinai. You know, in chapter 19, four times uh, Moses goes up and down Mount Sinai. Now, we don't know for sure where Mount Sinai is. There is, however, a strong tradition that Sinai is Jebel Musa on the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. Now, 
for, for you guys sitting here, it's quite a large mountain uh, by Aussie standards. It's uh, 2,285 metres above sea level. And at the base where the people may have gathered is St. Catherine's Monastery, uh, built in about the 4th century AD, which is at about 1,550 metres above sea level. The climb to the peak, therefore, from uh, Mount Catherine or St. Catherine's Monastery is about 700 metres vertically up. It's a path behind the monastery that is held by some to be the path of Moses, uh, which contains 3,750 steps called the Steps of Penitence, a three-hour one-way trip. Now, remember, Moses is 80 years old. This would have been massive. And four times in our passage, he ascends those steps up to the peak and back down again. And Moses comes back down and he reports the words, these words to the people. And the people answer together. They're united. They say, yes, we will do what God is asking. We will enter into this relationship. We will have you as our God. They're so enthusiastic and keen. And yet clearly they haven't grasped the gravity of what God is saying. And so Moses returns to make the climb back up the mountain. And we read in verse 9. It says the following. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Moses arrives back up the mountain and God reveals one of his great purposes for appearing in this way. I'm going to appear before all the people in a special way so that they'll know, Moses, that you're my chosen messenger. I want the people to know for sure that you speak for me. I want my people to hear when I speak to you so that they will always trust that you are my messenger both now and into the future. We read on. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. God instructs Moses, he says, You need to get the people ready to come near me. You need to consecrate them. That is, to make them holy. Now, the word holy, uh, for us, often means kind of like morally pure or something like that, which is part of what the word holy means, but it's not the whole thing. The, holy, the word holy here is an ancient word that comes from the word to cut or to separate. You know, in common English, it might mean something like a cut above the rest, to set apart, to be in one's own category. But when applied to God... It means to be superior and above all, all else, to be above everything. God's goodness is unmatched. God's power is unrivaled. God's wisdom is li limitless. Nothing compares to him in any category. He is a cut above the rest. He is holy. When applied to people, it means to be set apart from the commonplace or to be prepared for the Lord and for his use. God's people are going to prepare to experience a special revelation of his presence. 
And they're going to spend two whole days devoting themselves to God. They're going to wash their garments, or probably better, their cloaks, which would have been a massive ordeal for millions of people with little water present. Symbolic of cleansing and purity. They're going to later, Moses will explain, abstain from touching a woman, which is a euphemism for having sex, um, which is probably there because sex is something private and inward. And they're going to spend a time put aside, not to have an inward focus, but a Godward focus, to be spent focusing on preparing for him. And God says, my people need to prepare to come near me. I'm going to pause and I want to ask you a question at this point, which is, do you ever think about God this way? That a person needs special preparation to even come close to his presence. You see, the Bible teaches that God is limitless in power, in goodness, in love, in justice. And when people who are by nature selfish and wicked and unjust come into his presence, his being wants to obliterate them. Just like if you see injustice taking place, like a grandma being beaten or something like that, if you had the power to intervene and to end that kind of evil, a good person would. And the problem is we're all turned in on ourselves. We're all self-centered. And so God's being, which is the greatest good in the universe, by nature is against us. God is saying, I'm going to appear in glory and you need to prepare yourself before you get anywhere near me. Notice the people of Israel aren't going to go onto the mountain, just near it. And they still need to prepare. They don't even get to fully see his glory. The mountain is shrouded in clouds. And yet still, they need to prepare. It points to God's promise in many ways to make them a kingdom of priests. And just like priests before entering the table, they need to pause at uh, temple, they need to pause and prepare. Read on with me, verse 12. It says, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up onto the mountain. God then instructs Moses to set a clear perimeter around the mountain. God is going to presence himself on the mountain. It's going to become like the holiest of holies in the temple. The mountain is going to be set apart for God and his use. If something or someone even touches the boundary, they're going to be put to death. And the way it's written in the original language, that's emphatic. They will surely die. Again, emphatically, it says they will be stoned to death with rocks or shot to death with arrows. God is saying, when I make myself known to you, you can't get too close to me. You know, as modern people, we can find ourselves feeling a little uncomfortable with God commanding people to be put to death for anything. I mean, let alone coming too close. I mean, what's that all about? God is saying, there is a great separation between you and I. I am completely above and beyond you in every way. And my presence is dangerous. If you come too close and darken my presence with your presence, it will cost you your life. 
Even when you're ready to come near, it'll be on my terms. Wait until you hear my signal and the ram's horn blow, says God. You know, we live in a culture that loves to place me at the center. We love to call the shots. We love to follow our own dreams. We love to feel, do what feels right. We love to be true to ourselves. And yet to encounter the God of the Bible is to realize we're not at the center. He is. We can't even come close to his presence unprepared. He's our maker and the master of the universe, and he calls the shots. This passage shows us that God's people can only come into his presence on his terms. God is preparing his people to face his holy fire, and it all begins the very next day, which brings us to our second point, facing the holy fire. Why don't you read with me verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. You can imagine them camped at some distance from the base of Mount Sinai and the peak stretching up hundreds of meters in the air becomes shadowed by thick cloud. You can feel the breeze pick up as the clouds swell and the thunder begins to rumble. You can almost picture it as the sky darkens and lightning bolts begin to strike the peak again. And again, and again, swelling louder and louder and louder. And then suddenly, the blast of a trumpet fills the air. The way it's written, it says, an exceedingly great horn blast. And all the people tremble. Read with me verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Imagine the scene. The people of God are trembling with fear. But Moses stands and announces that it's time not to go away from the mountain but towards it. And imagine as they begin their nervous ascent towards the foot of Mount Sinai. Read on with me. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. As they draw near, they discover that what they thought was cloud 
was in fact smoke. Like in the burning bush, the Lord had descended upon Mount Sinai in the form of fire and smoke was pouring up from the peak, up and up and up like a wood fire oven or kiln. And the whole mountain is now shaking and the sound of the horn is growing louder and louder and louder. And you can almost feel the pure terror amongst the people of God as they stand there. And it says, And Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Moses stands before the people of God and calls out to Yahweh at the foot of the mountain. Perhaps better written, Moses was speaking and God was answering in thunder. God and Moses converse in the sight of all the people. We're not told what he said. Perhaps, O Lord my God, here I am with your people as you have commanded me. And God then answers, notice, in thunder. His voice mingles with the thunderclaps as he replies to one man standing before a million others. God then descends in fire upon the peak and calls Moses up to the peak of the mountain. He calls Moses to come and join him at the peak. Imagine the scene. Imagine the smoke, the fire, the cloud, the thunder, the lightning, the deafening horn, the earth quaking, called up to the peak and off he goes. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. At the peak, God tells Moses to warn the people again, not to come near lest they perish. And Moses is still new to leading Israel. He says, in effect, look, God, there's no way they're going to go against your command. Moses doesn't realize how hard-hearted they are. And God tells Moses to come back with Aaron and tells him again to warn the people not to trespass. Next week, Moses and Aaron will return and God will deliver the Ten Commandments. Well, how did the people of God respond to this incredible revelation? Well, we learn about it in the very next chapter. After giving the Ten Commandments, it says in... Exodus 20, 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us 
and we will listen to you. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. They start shrinking back to hide, and they beg for God to stop speaking directly to them. You speak to us, Moses. No more from God. We are dead men. It's an amazing revelation of the holy God of all. His power, His might, His glory, His holiness. But why is it here? Why did God decide to reveal Himself to His people in this way? Well, in verse 9, God had revealed that He wanted to ensure His people would trust Moses. But Moses explains another reason God had revealed himself in the very next verse. Verse 20 of chapter 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. It's their latest test in the university of the wilderness. God is preparing them to be his people. They've been rescued from Egypt, but they still don't know what God is like. He's offered to enter into a relationship with Israel, but they don't yet understand who they're getting into a relationship with, what he is like that he is not to be messed with. More, the purpose is that the fear of him might be before them and that they might not sin. Well, what is the fear of the Lord? You know, as 21st century Sydney siders, I think we can hear the fear of God and think God's trying to scare us into obedience or something. Isn't that manipulative? I mean, this is the kind of Christianity I reject. Fire and brimstone trying to control people. But you see, the fear of God is only manipulative if it isn't true. If God isn't really dangerous to a sinner, if he's pretending to be wrathful when he isn't really, that's manipulative. But if God really is wrathful towards sinners, if God really is not to be trifled with, it's the greatest kindness. It's a loving warning. And notice the love of God in in the way he repeatedly warns the Israelites not to come too close. He's concerned that he will destroy them. You see, the fear of God, it's not about having a phobia or an irrational fear. It's actually about seeing God rightly and therefore seeing ourselves and our plight if we ignore him rightly. That we face his wrath. To fear God, put another way, is to rightly revere him. It's to hold him in honor as the one who holds our life in the balance and is worthy of all praise. This is the reason why God brings his people to face his holy fire. He wants them to know that he's dangerous. He wants them to know that he's not to be trifled with. He wants them to fear him. 
This isn't cruelty from God. It's a wonderful gift of grace from God to his people. God wanted to imprint the flames of Mount Sinai, the quakes, the smoke, the horn, the lightning, the thunder in the minds of his people. It's a gift to his people to know that he's dangerous, to rightly revere him and live in a manner to please him. But this glimpse of the holy fire isn't just a gift for the Israelites three and a half thousand years ago. It's a gift for us today as well. Which brings me to our final point this morning, which is point three, the gracious gift of the fear of God. You know, it's possible to live your life too much on Mount Sinai and in the fear of God, such that you miss the tender kindness of God, especially in Jesus. But here's the thing. I don't think that's our problem. Most people, most of the time, in our neighborhood, don't struggle with living too much before the flames of Mount Sinai. Our problem, put simply, is a complete lack of the fear of God. We see no problem in taking his name in vain. OMG! Jesus Christ! God! We see no problem in repeatedly trespassing against his laws. No fear of God at all. But in failing to understand and to believe and live in light of the truth that God is to be feared, we're missing out on the fullness God has for us. You know, the right application, simply put, this morning for this passage is for us as a church to live more at the foot of Mount Sinai with the fear of the Lord. But I want to do things a little bit differently this morning. I don't want to just encourage you to live more at Mount Sinai. I want to encourage you by showing you how living before the holy fire can completely change your life. And I want to do that by giving you three life-changing consequences of living before the flames. Well, consequence number one, gift number one, grace number one. First and most importantly, living before the flames of Mount Sinai will increase your joy in Christ. Now, that might seem a little bit counterintuitive at first, but without the flames of Mount Sinai, we can't truly appreciate the finished work of Jesus. The truth is that we all rightly stand before the just wrath of God who appeared in the fires at Mount Sinai. Jonathan Edwards, uh, in a famous sermon of his entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, says the following, and he doesn't hold any punches, I warn you. Um, he says this, he says, There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. 
And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty its course when it is let loose. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or loathsome insect over the flame, his wrath towards you burns like fire. He is of pure eyes and the bear you to have you in his sight. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It's a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it. Behold the wrath of God. Behold the flames of Mount Sinai. And we all rightly hang over the flames by a thread. And so how sweet the amazing kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the eternal God of glory who revealed himself on Mount Sinai would humble himself. That the eternal son would suffer and die for those that had trespassed his boundary. That the Lord Jesus who shook the earth and made the people tremble would experience the fullness of God's wrath on the cross. You know, friends, indeed, the darkened sky and trembling earth of Mount Sinai point to another darkened sky and another trembling earth on the Mount of Crucifixion. And the message of the gospel is that on that cross, he bore our sins in full. He endured the flames of Mount Sinai once and for all, consuming in full the wrath of God. And the thunder and the lightning and the trumpet point us forward to when he comes back once more. The return of the king of all. You see, friends, living before the flames of Mount Sinai will increase your thankfulness, your joy in Christ. But more than that, it's, more, it's much more than that. Living before the flames of Mount Sinai will release you from the fear of man. You know, if I'm honest with you all, one of my great struggles in life has been a great desire for the approval of others. And when a good desire, that is people to think well of you, takes control, you find yourself anxious and afraid. You know, Ed Welch explains the root so well in the title of his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. You know, the main root of the fear of man is that God is too small in our eyes. But we weren't made to live in the fear of other people. God made us to live in the fear of him. And Mount Sinai is a gift to us to help us be rid of the fear of man. Just as the Lord Jesus says himself in Matthew 10, 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Living more before the flames of Mount Sinai 
will release you from the fear of man. You know, just imagine you're standing before your boss because you need to ask for Sundays off so that you can go to church. And just imagine yourself standing there and you're afraid. You're afraid of what he'll say in response. And you find yourself getting more and more anxious. But then you remember Mount Sinai. And you remember the fire. And you remember the trembling earth. And you remember the horn blast and the thunder and the lightning. And you remember that he's with you. And you remember that he's for you. It's a game changer. But not just releasing you from the fear of man. More than that, thirdly and finally... Living before the flames of Mount Sinai is the key to true wisdom. You know, Proverbs says it well in Proverbs 1.7. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 3.7-8 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. To fear the Lord, to respect and revere Him and pay careful attention to His instruction is where wisdom starts. Why is that? Well, if you ignore the God of the fiery mount, you're in great peril. In love, He's laid out how best to live in this world, this world that He's made. And can a person ignore that for long without perishing? You know, I, I wonder whether in a room this size there are some people here this morning who have not been living in fear of God. Maybe you call yourself a Christian. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're old. But maybe you're young. Either way, you've been living repeatedly in sin and it doesn't trouble you at all. You think it's perfectly okay to continue despite knowing it is contrary to the Word of God. I want to repeat the words of Jonathan Edwards to you. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it. You see, this vision of Mount Sinai is a great gift of grace to you. It's a call for you to turn back to him and repent. I want to implore you, if that's you, don't delay. Don't leave this room until you've made amends with God. Well, in summary, God appeared before his people in great fire on Mount Sinai as a precious gift to them so that they would trust Moses so that they would live in the fear of the one true God. And it's not just a gift to them, but to us as well. To increase our joy in Christ. 
to release us from the fear of man and to help us to be truly wise. And in closing, but how do you grow in the fear of the Lord? Well, I think Ed Welch in his excellent book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, puts it this way when he says, to grow in the fear of the Lord, you don't have to be a man of great knowledge. Simply a man that prays. Friends, the simplest way to grow in the fear of the Lord is to ask God to help you. It's to ask God to help you to fear him. And that's what we're going to do now as we close in prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord God Almighty, we come before your throne this morning as though, as people who rightly have no place at all to be there. And Lord, this morning as we stand and we consider the flames of Mount Sinai, we repent in dust and ashes. And we recognize this morning as your people that you alone are worthy of praise and glory and not us. And Lord, this morning we repent of the many ways in which we've lived our lives without the fear of you. With no fear of God before our eyes. Yet this morning we want to pause and we want to thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. That has rescued all those who trust in him from the fiery flames. And Lord God, this morning as your people, we come with a simple request that you would help us, Lord, to care less about what people think and to care more about what you think. Help us, Lord, to live more in the fear of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.